0: Way back at the beginning of this podcast, in episode 6, HIV On Your Mind, I spoke with Dr. Joseph Berger, a neuroimmunologist and an international authority on complications of HIV in the nervous system. In this week's episode, I visit with him again. But instead of covering the broad strokes of HIV in the nervous system, this week we're getting more focused and talking specifically about progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy, or PML. Welcome back to Brainwaves. I'm Jim Siegler. Today, we're going to cover more than 50 years of history from the discovery of PML to future therapeutics. So, you want to get started?
1: Yeah, sure. Let's do it.
0: The patient is a 69-year-old gentleman with a history of stage 1a nodular sclerosing Hodgkin's who was initially diagnosed in October 1976 following a biopsy of a mediastinal mass with staging laparotomy and splenectomy. At the time, he received mantle radiotherapy and paraaortic radiotherapy in the following year, which was also followed by six cycles of chemotherapy at the time, and this included methotrexate, vincristine, procarbazine, and prednisone, the MOP regimen. There were no complications from his disease for over 40 years until he presented with two months of progressive dysarthria, left-sided dysmetria, and ataxia uh, of his gait. An MRI of the brain, with and without contrast, demonstrated a non-enhancing white matter lesion of the left cerebellar hemisphere and the middle cerebellar peduncle. Uh, Given that his symptoms evolved over the course of an evening while he was at a social event with his wife, it was thought that maybe he had a subacute infarct and so he was worked up for stroke at the time. However, his symptoms continued to progress despite antiplatelet and uh, torvastatin. So he followed up with a repeat MRI a month later, which showed progressive increase in the size of the cerebellar lesion, and this was concerning for PML, tumor, or any of a number of other causes. A biopsy was eventually performed which confirmed features of progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy and he was referred for clinical trial e- evaluation. So let's just talk about kind of how this patient was diagnosed and go through how he'd gone 40 years of management for Hodgkin lymphoma and annual CBCs, and nobody suspected the otherwise. Finally, when he presented and we considered PML in the differential diagnosis, we checked a CD4 level and it was 260.
1: Well, I'm not 100% certain that it's just the CD4 lymphopenia that puts people at risk. There's something unique about certain of these underlying diseases that give rise to the CD4 lymphopenia, although we have seen PML in the setting of both idiopathic CD4 and idiopathic CD8 lymphopenia. So what that leads us to think about is, what is it that we understand about the pathogenesis of PML? that an idiopathic CD4 lymphopenia or lymphopenia in general would give rise to to increase one's risk. Firstly, you have to be infected by the virus. And we know from seroepidemiologic studies that by the time we're adults, 70 or 75 percent of the entire world's population has been exposed to the virus. But a quarter of us are never going to be at risk because we've not been exposed to it. The second is, what we know about this virus, is that the virus we are exposed to is what we refer to as the archetype virus.
0: I think we're starting to get ahead of ourselves here. That's the problem when you interview an international expert on PML. To back up and give you a bird's eye view, the JC virus, or John Cunningham virus, is a member of the polyomavirus family. When you're exposed to it as a kid or a young adult, you might not even notice it or you might notice cold-like symptoms, which are self-limiting. Not a huge deal at all. You get infected, you make antibodies, life goes on, as long as you're immunocompetent. The archetype variant of the virus, as Dr. Berger details here, is the form of the virus that circulates in your blood and sets up camp in your tonsils, your lymph nodes, the heart, the spleen, and the kidney, not the central nervous system. Like a passenger in line for a ticket to board the brain train, The virus must wait for cellular immunity to fail, in order to reactivate in circulating B-cells. Then, as the virus propagates, a small regulatory region of the JC virus undergoes rearrangement, and it replicates. The interesting thing is that these repeats happen to modify the virus's cellular tropism. With enough repeats, more neurotropic proteins are expressed, and finally a threshold is reached whereby the JC virus can invade glial tissue.
1: When you look at the initial reports of PML, the very first in 1958 by Astromancho and Richardson in their issue of brain, two of the patients had CLL, one had Hodgkin's disease. These had B-cell malignancies. This virus can be latent in B-cells in these peripheral blood mononuclear cells, and they are a very good milieu for the replication of the virus and for the genetic transformation that occurs. Now, whether that truly occurs or not, we don't know with 100% certainty, but there is a line of evidence from some recent publications.
0: So specifically, why then are cases of Hodgkin's and uh, and CLL, are they at more risk?
1: That's a very good question. And quite frankly, I don't know the answer. I suspect that it's a combination of things. One is, I think the B-cell story plays a large role in this, It's conceivable that the B-cell story in Hodgkin's plays a role, the B-cell story in AIDS. I mean, the biggest risk factor for PML, unequivocally right now, is HIV infection. And you say, well, why is it that HIV infection does it? And you'd say, well, it's CD4. But it's much more complex. If you look at why AIDS predisposes to PML, There are a number of things that you can come up with. Firstly, there is this impaired immunity, which means that the virus then is not suppressed in the periphery and it's not suppressed when it makes it into the brain. So that's part of the story. Uh, The second is, is that when you're infected with HIV, HIV gets into the brain very early, within two weeks of infection. It sets up these little rests that are pretty vascular of microglial cells and multinucleated giant cells that elaborate HIV, and they disrupt the blood-brain barrier. So it may allow for entry of this virus and virus-infected cells to get into the brain, number one. And number two, there's an upregulation of both cytokines and certain proteins from HIV, like the TAT protein, that can transactivate the JC virus. Additionally, there's hardly a patient you see with PML and HIV that doesn't have a hypergammaglobulinemia. anemia. You say, well, why do they have a hypergammaglobulinemia? There is this B-cell dysregulation that occurs. And could that B-cell dysregulation, could that, in a way, contribute to the genesis? So there are many different factors that give rise to it.
0: back to our case. So this gentleman presented and he had an abnormal MRI, which showed T2 prolongation in his deep cerebellar nuclei and part of the lateral hemispheres of the cerebellum with no contrast enhancement on the first MRI and then subsequently did have some small focus of contrast enhancement. Given his clinical presentation, this could almost be anything, but at the time it was thought that this could have been a subacute infarct without any evidence of restricted diffusion. So maybe it was more subacute to chronic that had formed or it could be a low-grade neoplasm like a glioma. And then as he eventually developed some degree of mild contrast enhancement, it made it a little bit more unusual for PML. Can you kind of describe some of the features that we see on MRI for PML and why PML would be suspected in this case?
1: Right. So some of the early literature on this is absolutely wrong. And uh, I'm aware of this because in 1998, I published a paper in which I reviewed 154 cases Of HIV associated PML. One of the things that had been written in the literature is that PML is unassociated with contrast enhancement. That was absolutely wrong.
0: So, even in the
1: HIV population, in the era before we had effective antiretroviral therapy, so we weren't dealing with iris, 10% of that population had CT contrast enhancement and 15% had gadolinium enhancement on MRI. So, we saw contrast enhancement even in the absence of iris or iris developing in the absence of treatment in that population. And with natalizumab, that number's even higher. So, 50% or more of the individuals that have natalizumab associated PML have contrast enhancement. Usually, it is a faint area of contrast enhancement that may be a ring. We may see it in the center. It's not a robust, dense contrast enhancement that one sees. And the lesions are typically unassociated with mass effect, unless in rare instances of virus you may see some mass effect.
0: In addition to the faint areas of contrast enhancement, which, like Dr. Berger said, was not always the case, the name PML really doesn't do the disease justice. As in the case of PRESS, which we learned in episode 22 is not always posterior, not always reversible, and not always associated with encephalopathy. PML does not have to be progressive. Sometimes it can remain quiescent although it usually progresses if untreated. It need not be multifocal, and usually when it's caught early, it happens to be unifocal. It also needn't be associated with a leukoencephalopathy. True, the unifocal or multifocal white matter lesions tend to coalesce into a confluent white matter disorder, but these patients don't have to present with encephalopathy. In fact, 18% present with seizures, which is more often classified as a cortical phenomenon. Then there's also the well-described JC virus-associated granule cell neuronopathy, which results in a cerebellar atrophy without associated Purkinje cell involvement or the classical white matter disease pattern you see in PML. And then there's the JC virus encephalopathy with cortical features and even cases of JC virus meningitis or fulminant encephalitis, which are even rarer conditions.
1: And it is a disease that you have to have a high suspicion for, particularly in somebody who's had a history of Hodgkin's disease in the past. The long hiatus from the time he was treated 40 years ago to the present is very, very unusual. Nonetheless, it's
0: still in the differential. And you mentioned PML iris earlier. Are there any imaging features that would distinguish PML from PML iris, or is it more of a clinical diagnosis?
1: So it's both. With PML iris, one usually sees a worsening of the clinical manifestations, uh, which is paradoxical because their immune system is now being restored. Uh, The second is that there is uh, a worsening of the MRI picture. So it may You may actually see some edema, you'll see worsening contrast enhancement, or you'll see contrast enhancement where none existed before.
0: And so our patient eventually got a brain biopsy, which confirmed features of PML.
1: So there's a triad of histopathologic features. The chief among them is demyelination. Of course, demyelination can be seen with many other illnesses. The second is uh, bizarre astrocytes. These astrocytes have an appearance that can look like a malignancy, and in fact, uh, there have been individuals that have been misdiagnosed as having gliomas. The third is these uh, enlarged oligodendrogliome nuclei. The oligodendroglia support the entire replicative cycle of JC virus, and the nuclei are chock full of this virus, and as the virus is released from the cell, this cell dies from necrosis, and then there are these little islands of demyelination that occur adjacent to this erupted, so to speak, oligodendrocyte. The oligodendrocyte dies, and therefore there's no myelin. And so those are the three characteristic features. But in addition to those, to nail the diagnosis, you have to be able to demonstrate the viruses there by immunohistochemical techniques. Or you can demonstrate that the virus is there using electron microscopy. It has a very unique crystalline structure. Or you can demonstrate that it's there by PCR, although there are normal brains where you can find J.C. virus. So just finding J.C. virus in the brain alone, in the absence of any other features, doesn't mean you have PMO.
0: We actually did obtain CSF from him one time before the diagnosis was made by pathology. And you've collaborated with others within the American Academy of Neurology to kind of write up the guidelines for how to make the diagnosis of PML. Can you describe how we go through a case and eventually arrive at the diagnosis of PML without even using a biopsy or when a biopsy is necessary? Sure. So the biopsy still
1: remains the gold standard. But the vast majority of individuals are diagnosed with PML in the absence of a biopsy. So how do we make that diagnosis? Well, one is you have to have a clinical course that is consistent with the diagnosis. And that means a disease that chiefly affects the white matter. That's not to say you couldn't see seizures or aphasia or something like that. And it should be progressive in nature. And it may or may not be multifocal as we talked about before. You should have MRI manifestations. and MRI is far more specific and sensitive than CT scan or any other form of imaging. The spinal fluid analysis is enormously helpful. So if you have those two and you're spinal fluid shows JC virus by PCR, you've made the diagnosis.
0: To summarize Dr. Berger here, you don't need tissue to make the diagnosis of PML. In an immunocompromised patient with progressive neurologic changes, you'll always need the MRI, so get that first. This can exclude opportunistic processes like toxoplasmosis, cryptococcal meningitis, or CNS lymphoma but the MRI will also be important to confirm the presence of white matter disease, which may have enhancement 10-20% to 20% of the time, and it may or may not have mass effect. Our patient had some faint enhancement, as you can see from the images on the blog. Once the MRI confirms the predominant white matter involvement, you'll need to identify JC virus in the CSF. However, in 5-25% to 25% of cases, the PCR for JC virus can be negative when a patient has true PML, which was also the case for our patient. So if the imaging is suggestive, but CSF is negative, you'll need the brain biopsy to confirm the diagnosis. The full details of this diagnostic algorithm were published by Dr. Berger in the journal of Neurology back in 2013, but they've remained the standard workup for PML ever since. Now let's move on to treatment.
1: Firstly, let me say that there's no animal model for PML.
0: The animal model is the human. You have
1: to study it in the laboratory. If you study it in the laboratory, you find that there are many different compounds that will inhibit viral replication. Among them are things like cytosine rabinicide. Put that in a culture dish. You can knock out the virus. It's not going to replicate anymore. And you say, well, that should work.
0: Nope. Didn't work.
1: So cytosine rabinicide didn't seem to help, at least the way we were giving it. We thought that diffusion enhanced delivery might be effective and
0: nope. Not effective.
1: It was followed by lamentable results, I should say. Cidovavir has been tried. And, uh, there's a drug called Topotecan. It's a DNA topoisomerase inhibitor. There haven't been trials. It's just that it's so toxic. Mefloquine, which is an antimalarial agent. There's a thought that since the virus uses a serotonin receptor, a 5-HT2A receptor, that if you were to block that, that you would prevent the virus from entering new cells. And therefore, we've used mirtazapine remeron
0: in patients. Wait, sorry. Actually, mirtazapine may work a little bit.
1: And then there's a body of literature that suggests that certain interleukins, like interleukin-2 or interleukin-5, may be helpful, or that you can engineer cells to be directed to JC virus- And there is, as I mentioned a bit earlier, this effort to identify a broadly neutralizing antibody that may be effective.
0: Dr. Berger has hit on some of the main therapeutic options, recombinant interleukins, antivirals like sidofovir and acyclovir, and others. But for patients with an idiopathic lymphopenia, or those like our patient who experienced lymphopenia as a consequence of his prior hematologic malignancy, there really is not much out there with strong evidence for treating PML. On the contrary, in patients with HIV, who account for the majority of cases of PML, the treatment is highly active antiretroviral therapy. In patients on natalizumab, as we've seen in recent years, treatment involves permanent discontinuation of natalizumab and the initiation of plasmapheresis. In patients on other immunomodulatory therapies like fingolimod, it's unclear what the most effective approach should be, and studies are ongoing.
1: So you're stuck. And the curious thing about this disease is it can be very capricious. Patients in my practice have done well in the absence of any significant therapy, and I've described some of those in the literature as case reports. Generally, they have higher CD4 counts. They have more contrast enhancement, more inflammation on biopsy, suggesting that the body is reacting against it. I have, as a matter of routine, thrown everything but the kitchen sink. To, uh, so I would definitely put the man on methylquin and rotezapine. They're pretty benign. And consider some other therapy as well.
0: So that's it. Progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy in a gentleman with a history of Hodgkin's. And before HIV, before 1984 really hematologic malignancies like Hodgkin's disease were the most common cause of PML. I'd like to thank Dr. Berger here for being on the show again and walking us through the case. He truly is an expert on this topic, so I hope you all took away as much as I did from this talk. As always, we're happy to receive any of your comments at bweditorialboard at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Brainwaves Audio or on facebook.com slash Podcast. I think there are about four other Brainwaves podcasts out there, so I'm really glad you chose the right one. I'd also like to recognize Lee Rosevear for contributing the music to this episode and to many, many of the previous episodes on this podcast series. And lastly, a huge thank you goes to Erica Mejia for her assistance in the production. I'm Jim Siegler for Brainwaves. Talk to you next week.